content warning. This episode contains discussions relating to the topics of extreme violence, sexual assault, and traumatic events. If these topics are triggering to you in any way, please take caution when listening to this episode. Thank you, and enjoy the show. I got these scars? Well, I'm the Joker, baby. <laughs> Welcome to Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman. My name is Jackson Heyman. I am doing this very quick because we recorded this part already, but an issue with the recording software that we were using uh, fucked us over. But you know what? We're back. We're talking the killing joke. I am joined by Isaac Brust. How are you doing, Isaac? I'm doing great, you know. It's it's good to be here. Thank you for having me on. Um you know, yeah, we 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 persevere, you know. We 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 get through it. We persevere. Isaac, would you care to again fill us in on your history with comics and graphic novels and all this stuff? I would love to. Um uh, yeah, I I don't know. I've always been interested in um graphic novels as like an art form and a medium for storytelling um, ever since a young age. I know, especially when I was growing up, um, I don't know, a lot of the media I consumed was um, a lot of the like classic comics. I was a big Spider-Man kid, like the, the, the OG run of Spider-Man. Um, so like I, w- I was really into that as a kid. Uh, and then I sort of fell off. Um, I was still interested in like the ethos of comics and I was still watching Marvel movies and and the and the DC shows in like middle and high school but I wasn't really into comics so much anymore um and now I'm just sort of rekindling my love for comics as an art form um and it's been really good to go back and read the killing joke specifically cuz I think it's a really important piece in like what made comics the way they are today absolutely and like we we touched on this in the first time we tried to record this, but I think we both had like similar journeys of like being really into this as kids, then being like, hey, this, you know, this isn't as sophisticated as some of these other art forms we are pursuing. And then in recent years, coming back and discovering that, yeah, comics and graphic novels and other forms of serialized storytelling can be just as mature and artistic and open to analysis and interpretation as films or theater or poetry or other sorts of things. Exactly. And I I do just, I do need to say this. So we have this in the podcast, Isaac, you carried around a copy of Schrodinger's cat. I I 
<laughs> I thought we moved past that, bro. You made a confession. I made a confession. Yeah, then okay. We... <laughs> I will repeat it. I will repeat my confession. I carried around a copy of Infinite Jest, and I have a copy of the Odyssey that I've never read sitting on my bookshelf. I just thought it was in my hyper intellectual era. I thought I was not like the other guys because I knew like one thing about quantum physics. I knew that you didn't know if the cat was alive or dead. So maybe it was both. And that's all. And I could parrot that for hours, but I couldn't tell you a single other thing about that book. So yeah, I did. I carried around in search of Schrodinger's cat for multiple years of my life in an attempt to look cool and it didn't work shocker it didn't work (laughs) you know maybe the thing that makes you look cool isn't carrying around a giant piece of like text or intellectual literature and maybe the cool thing is carrying around a big paperback of comics that's it yeah true yeah it's having the the hardcover deluxe edition of the killing joke right in front of me that's what's cool (laughs) exactly yeah i'm saying that i'm talking to you my superman by peter j tomasi and patrick gleason (laughs) omnibus hardcover um but yeah we are talking the killing joke um Written and released in March of 1988, written by Alan Moore with art by Brian Bolland and John Higgins. Um, Before we jump into like what this story is, I feel like we have to talk about the, the British invasion of comics, which was it was like that era in the 80s, mid to late 80s, where like a bunch of writers and artists from England, obviously, um, came over and started doing American comics. And these stories became like way more mature, a lot darker, and really took a lot more chances and experimentation with comics as a medium. So you get stuff like um, Alan Moore's Saga of the Swamp Thing. You get um, Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Um, you get one of my favorite comics of all time, Animal Man by Grant Morrison. And you get all these different interpretations, especially with DC comics, of like lesser known characters getting complete reinventions and way darker tones. Interesting. I didn't know. I don't know how I didn't know that Alan Moore was a Brit. Oh, you didn't know he was a Brit? I did not. I mean, have you... (laughs) Okay. I I have I haven't read a lot of his other stuff, so I, I've like well, I've perused his other works. But. I ha, you have seen a picture of him though, right? I that yes, I have. <laughs> yes. Um, n- I'm not trying to make fun of Alan Moore's physical appearance here. He looks, but he looks like an old wizard. And no, he does. He is a wizard. <laughs> he's a wizard. He no, he has he has on record said that he uses his comics as like forms of spell casting to fuck with the world around him. And all right, my man. Um hey you do you, you know <laughs> you are an angry British man who I don't think is shaved in decades and likes it that way. And you know, you're just living your best life. I respect that. And I respect what he puts out into the world, you know? Yeah, because Alan Moore has done things like this, The Killing Joke. Um, and he's also done Watchmen, Swamp Thing, 
League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, things that have like been immortalized in comics history forever. Whether he likes it or not, you know, because I know he's he's definitely gone on record. Oh, and, absolutely. And sort of recanted a lot of the things he's written as, you know, not his best, but, you know, it's out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this especially, I think. I think we will we will get into unpacking some of the things in this story in a second, but I do think we need to address the um you because this came at a time the killing joke came at a time when Alan Moore was extremely like mad at DC Comics and he had basically sworn off working with them because of what happened with Watchmen. Have have you heard about this? I don't I don't I don't know the uh, the controversy no. So Watchmen gets released. Um immediately here he had originally wanted to use like established characters that DC had just acquired. He wanted to use like the Blue Beetle, um Captain Adam, uh the Question and um star of the current um smash hit on HBO Max Peacemaker um as like the main characters in Watchmen. But then immediately DC said no, because like because they were like, we have other plans for these. So he created the characters in Watchmen to serve as almost direct analogs of those characters. And then you watch Watchmen comes out and it is a smash hit. It is beloved by everyone. It, It like redefines what comic books and graphic novels can be. And then. Alan Moore has this deal with DC that is basically like, I will retain full rights to all these characters and to the entire Watchmen property as a whole one year after the book goes out of circulation. And what does DC do? Continues to publish and re-release Watchmen every year until right now in 2022 when they are currently putting out new editions. Man, can't have shit in Detroit. That's so sad. Like, I feel like he's just—he's been done dirty for all the for all of the beautiful stuff that he's created. Like, yeah, he—he he really has been fucked over a lot, so many times. Because there's other stuff with like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that screwed things up for him. Sometimes, in my personal opinion, he's not really a great writer, but. That's for another day, because I actually do really like a lot of what he does in The Killing Joke. Yeah, I I do, too. Um, And, you know, I I think it's good to get the backstory on him because, you know, I I can't blame him for at this point in time. I believe he has sort of left comics as a as a medium. And I was just doing novels. Yes, he he retired um, from comics. I believe a couple of like in 2019 with like the last volume of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which until recently, I had no idea was still being published, but he just kept writing that. And I haven't read it, but it gets weird, apparently. But The Killing Joke was not Moore's idea originally. It was uh, artist Brian Bolland who came to DC and was like, I want to tell like a definitive origin story for the Joker. Mm-hmm. And 
then DC basically comes in and, and goes to Moore and is like, hey, do you want to write this? And Moore's like, <laughs> I imagine that's exactly what he sounds like. They go to Alan Moore and he reluctantly agrees to work on this and it gets released and it basically redefines a lot of like the Batman Joker relationship, I think. Yeah, I think it really just like, I mean, set the foundation for like pretty much every modern take on Batman since then, including the movies and the games. Like you can see there's so much influence from Alan Moore's Joker in Heath Ledger's Joker even. I, yeah, I would, I would absolutely say, I think there is no other Batman story that's like really been taken from have has had elements taken from it more than the killing joke because like you look at every batman franchise that has existed up until right now like a month before this new the batman drops and you see different so many different interpretations of the joker and they all they all borrow something from this version well except jared leto but we don't need to talk about jared leto we we don't have to talk about that i don't i don't even count that as like a real canon at this point (laughs) i i think that joker has more in common with the uh scott snyder greg capullo new 52 cuts off his own face as a prank joker than this the killing joke joker yeah i i would agree with that and i i i think it's very interesting because quick side tangent about like the batman movies like every franchise has done the joker every iteration has done the joker in some way and they've all borrowed things from this and I'm very inter- interested to see what this new Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson Batman does. Because, I mean, according to, to everyone involved, that Batman's a little freak. Yeah. Robert Pattinson said he's a little freak. And they, <laughs> they, they seem to be borrowing a lot from, like, The Long Halloween and Hush and these newer, or, like, newer than The Killing Joke stories that are more like mm-hmm. detective focused and very much like noir focused and yeah i'm interesting to cuz like we've heard rumors that they might be bringing in the joker at like the very end as like a credits tease yeah and yeah. i'm very interested to see how they handle their version of the joker and what they might borrow from alan moore's joker mhm i'm 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 always interested in a new in a new take on the Joker. That's the thing. Like I discovered this comic uh, in I believe like 2014 when like the re the, when the recolor came out. Oh yes, yes. That's like the first time I read it. Um, and so like I think that also me. I think that also might be the first time I read it. We're synced up in the through the ether on our Joker on our Jokerfication. <laughs> that's, that's kind of cute but also like uh, also like 
I don't think the story should be read by 15-year-olds. No, I definitely, I, I had no clue that comics could get like this. Like, at that point in my life, like, that, like, that is not something that I knew comics could do. Let's, let's honestly just dive straight into it, because, like, I think there's a lot to talk about, and it, you, you know, it starts with, like, that immediate like setting the tone of mood because you've got like the the nine panel grid of like the rainy night as the batmobile pulls up to arkham Mm -hmm. and it's the light and the shadows and it sets the mood so well i think i i would agree uh it's just it's gloomy you know it like it reminds me of like the the modern batman you know it's very it's it's solemn and he's i think an interesting thing of note is that batman like is a shadow in like the first like 10 pages until he pulls the 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 fake joker into the light on page 12 he's all encased in shadow yeah and i I love that when artists do that Batman where he's like two white eyes and shadow. And mm-hmm. it's it's so striking as like you watch this conversation unfold. Like there's that line in one of the first pages on that. We're going to kill each other, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And that puts you puts you into that dynamic immediately. You're like oh shit you you see these two characters who have a massive history that you know it's gonna end one day and it if it doesn't stop if it doesn't stop now it's gonna end violently mm-hmm. yeah i think it's interesting too because it's not the real joker like in the in these first couple panels but like you like i don't know it, it's it's interesting that batman just keeps talking even even though there's no he's getting no response like he he's having these own he's having these thoughts on his own yeah oh my god you're absolutely you're absolutely right and like, like he's just talking to himself i think it sets up it sets up the question of like do you think he knows that this isn't the real joker yeah or do you think he is in complete denial I don't know. Also, also, how, what, what a gig to be hired by a guy to just be like, hey, (laughs) I'm going to pay you to sit in prison, dress up like a clown and play solitaire for me. Yeah. You know, it's better than food service. Honestly, yeah, I'd rather that than work at Subway. Yeah. Oh, my God. I would. Yeah. If given the choice between working a food service job and sitting in an, sitting in prison dressed as a clown playing solitaire for 24 hours a day i'd pick the clown yeah i mean i you know the, you could you could you could spin off so many so many arguments for why for why batman is bad against that you know like of course somebody would rather work for the joker than work a 9 to 5 for minimum wage you know the joker's actually going to pay him you know maybe they'll die but hey yeah you might you might die but you know you're <laughs> i can't believe i'm coming we're coming into the defense of the joker here but you know 
you might die, but I bet I bet he pays well. And you've got a funny boss. You've got it's... you've got a boss that tries to be funny. Yeah, no, I think well, I think that's one of the most interesting things about this book as a whole. Is it like it tries to get you to to see where he's coming from, and I, in my opinion, it succeeds. Like it does a tremendous job in like almost jokerifying the reader. Like it's very it's convincing, you know. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. You you are absolutely. Not wrong, because we get a very human portrayal of the Joker through, like, the various black and white flashbacks where you see him as, like, a struggling stand-up comedian who quit his day job and is trying to support a wife and a baby on the way. And it's it's kind of heartbreaking watch, watching this guy's life fall apart. But you know that he's about to become, like... A psycho, a psychotic mass murderer, mm-hmm. and it it really like you catch yourself and you're like, oh, am I feeling bad for the Joker? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a real it's really interesting positioning, and you know, I guess we're moving on to sort of the the flashback uh, panels, and I just have to note on on page fifteen. Those those like identical panels. I don't know if you like when they when they jump out of the vignette into present day. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like when he's reaching out to his wife and then he's looking at the laughing clown machine. Like that is so cool. The way Brian Ballen does this artwork is incredible. Um, he he is a great artist. Um, he I think he might still be alive. I think he's still alive. And like because like. You he comes from like a sci-fi and horror comic background, doing stuff for like 2000 AD and a bunch of Judge Dredd stuff, mm-hmm. and you really see that influence here. I do want to go back a second before the flashback, where like you see the Joker buying this carnival. Keep mm-hmm. he, he straight up buys like a carnival grounds, and I think the design is like. This is where my mind goes when I think the Joker, like the extremely like chic purple suit, like the wide brimmed hat and that facial design, especially Mm -hmm. like the long, the long chin. Yeah, I think, yeah, this is one of like, this is like iconic Joker. And like, it's interesting because throughout the comic, we get so many different looks at the joker like there's a lot of really terrifying panels and there's a lot of really like human panels while he still looks like the joker but like in a completely different way that i don't think many people have explored at all not not really because like i'm trying i'm trying to think of like stories that have used the joker in this much of a capacity since the killing joke and I think there there have been a lot of stories with the Joker in Batman comics since 1988, but like he's never the main player. He is always like a background character who is there and then makes his strike because you've got things like um oh shit. Uh you got things like No Man's Land where like all of Gotham is destroyed by an earthquake. Everyone's in like various gangs serving criminal lords who have rose up and the Joker's just wandering around 
He's just doing his own thing and doesn't really make a full mark on that storyline until the very end. And, like, I think the the most we've seen of the Joker since that is um, Death of the Family, mm. which was, um, like, the sequel to, like, Death in the Family, <laughs> um, which is the titular story, which is the story where the Joker cuts off his own face. Yeah. And then captures all the bad family members and plays like a horrible, horrible prank on them. And it's very gory. And we're actually going to be talking about that later in the it later in the year. So I don't want to talk about that right now. All right. All right. <laughs> but so like this is like definitive Joker, I think. And because like you see this and you see elements that would later go on to be like the Batman, the animated series Joker the Arkham games Joker, like all of these, mm-hmm. all of these like various Jokers have borrowed a lot from the killing joke. Yeah. I, and I think, I think that's in part just to like, they give him a lot of, a lot of, uh, I, I guess it, it's obviously not screen time. They give him a lot of page time on the, in this book, but like they give him a lot of dialogue, which I think like, really helps to inform the character like you this book is like quintessential like joker philosophy like you get like his ideology down to almost a science in this one and and i think that has really been helpful to a lot of people for interpreting character if they want to use him in like an extended capacity absolutely and like i miss this joker specifically like the fucking psychopathic murderer who still has fun with it, who like has a secret hideout in a carnival, who like in who like does all these goofy pranks that are extremely violent. Yeah, I think I, I think like this just is in my opinion like the the perfect interpretation of the Joker. And and we can get into like some criticisms of um you know certain certain parts certain this book being a little too a little too harsh a little too dark um for the joker oh. specifically oh i'm getting uh, there i am yeah well, that that's around halfway through i have half a page of notes yeah. about a specific yeah. point i i want to comment on one thing in like this scene like right at the very end um like as he's leaving the carnival and it you if the panel that frames him walking away while the carnival worker has like been infected with Joker toxin and Mm -hmm. that face that the carnival worker is making is probably the scariest image in the entire comic for me. Yeah. That haunted me when I first read it. Yeah. Cause I think 14 years old. It is. I think it is the page that I like remember turning to first and seeing like that, panel and i oh my god what is this this is a batman story Mm -hmm. it's it's jarring and it's it's especially interesting because like joker venom is like an established like weapon of the joker and 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 a lot of comics and tv before the Killing Joke have used Joker Venom, but never in a way that is that grotesque. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he's got, like, that trickle of blood coming out of his mouth. His eyes are, like, bloodshot and, like, popping out. Like, it is, uh, the, the imagery is so visceral. Yeah. Yeah, it, the just describing it is, like, it's, there are parts in this book that I feel like are more horrifying, specifically for context-wise, but in terms of just like an out of context shot, knowing what the Joker can do and has the potential to do is it's scary. It's horrifying. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. Yeah, I just I, I cannot <laughs> praise Brian Bolland's work on this enough. Like the, the imagery is just is something else. It's so like the imagery specifically, it's done it's handled so well and there are there are panels we haven't touched on that like he tends to frame like shots around like an object a lot too and i think those are some of the most interesting panels when especially like in that scene we talked about earlier when like the joker's playing solitaire and all you all it's focusing on is like the hands Mm -hmm. it's all the cards yeah before we move on to the part that i we we do need to unpack i I do want to just mention that, like, there is this is like right right after, like, the main, like, DC Universe reboot with Crisis on Infinite Earths that, like, basically retconned everything into one planet, destroyed the multiverse and got rid of, like, all the Silver Age timeline. And I I wanted to mention Mm there is a part where Batman's in the Batcave and he's just like looking at a at, at like a like a joker card from a deck of playing cards and then he and he it like turns over it pans over to like a framed photo of like the silver age bat family mm-hmm. and i just think it's so because this is not the direction comics had been going with the bat family at this point but it's so funny that like you see batman dick Grayson, robin but he's like the really young one in like the short pants and Ace the Bat Hound and the Silver Age Batwoman and Batmite. Mm-hmm. Like, I I just think it's very funny that Batman called up this fifth dimensional imp and <laughs> asked, do you want to be in a family photo? Yeah, no, I think it's in- I think it's like it's almost like a goodbye in a way to this. Yeah, like that's sort of what it feels like because he's like setting down the card too. Like it, it is an action shot and like an object shot. Like it is, it's it's in a way saying goodbye to like this more idyllic age of comics, and like he's like, yeah, it's about to get real. (laughs) Like (laughs) Isaac Rust, I've never I've never read it that way. Thank you for opening my mind a bit more. You're welcome. I don't know. I I think I think there's there's just so much to unpack in literally every panel in this comic like there's 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 a lot that can be analyzed here yeah oh my god yeah um okay uh it's time to unpack this moment um there's going to be content warnings at the beginning of the episode as well but content warnings um extreme violence and sexual assault because it then cuts over to uh, Jim Gordon and Barbara Gordon, who are just like hanging out at home and like having a nice day. And then there's a knock at the door. And standing at the door is the Joker, who 
shoots Barbara in the chest and strips her down and takes naked photos of her. And this is like, this is the infamous moment of this story. The, like, the, the shooting of Barbara Gordon, which left her paralyzed in DC comic continuity for, for almost three decades. And I think besides, like, the overall, like, ethos of the Joker, this is the second most influential part of this. Maybe, probably the most influential part of this comic, because it has influenced, like, it created an entire character with with Oracle. And, and like, the, the craziest part is that it was not trying to do that. Like, this book was not trying to be canon. That was never the intention. All Moore and Bolland intended to do was to shoot Barbara in the stomach and use her as, like, a tool in the Joker's bigger scheme to try and break Commissioner Gordon. And I think my biggest problem with this might just be how DC had handled Barbara up until this. Because, like, she she had been Batgirl for a while, but she didn't, she never, she is the only, uh, I know, sorry, she, she ha- did not have a solo series until 2011. And she never had a solo series when she was Batgirl at this point. She was just showing up in other books and around. And, but... those appearances were like few and far between Mm -hmm. and i forgot how early this happens yeah i did too i i thought it was like halfway through the comic but it is like almost out the gate it is like the third scene maybe it's maybe it's because like the story this the story itself is so short and like it's extremely fast-paced but it comes out of nowhere yeah yeah, there's no there's no setup for that. Like we uh, up until that point, like we truly don't know what's going on. We've seen the Joker buy a carnival and Batman figure out that he's not in jail. And that's pretty much it. Yep. And then, you know, Barbara gets paralyzed and assaulted out of nowhere. And this is one of two appearances for her in this entire story. Because she has a little moment later in the book and but that's not that is not even much of like more than like two pages yeah yeah i think it it is literally two pages she's actually only featured on one of them oh my god uh yeah um this is definitely like a prime example of fridging and mm-hmm. and injuring slash murder not not murdering because barbara isn't murdered in this instance but like using a female character for to progress the arc of a male character. And mm-hmm. it's there it is it is just a lot to lot to unpack. And I I think in story it works for what is being done. But looking at it almost a a little over a little over um Oh, I'm doing I'm doing math quickly. Uh yeah, a little over 3 decades since this has since this was released. I 
I think we really have to like address this and realize just how not great this moment is. Yeah. I think I I think it's a really interesting scene for what it is. And and I think what shocked me most about reading this is that like when I read it in 2014 I, and up until this year when I when I reread it, I had no idea that this released in 88. I had I had no clue that it came out that long ago. Um and like it's just interesting because like reading this in retrospect, it is very it is very impactful. And like you said, like it is a clear cut example of I, I like that you use the verb fridging. I've never heard that before, but it's the it's the women in refrigerators trope. It, yes. Like, yes. It, um coined and uh coined coined by one of my favorite writers of all time, Gail Simone, who mm-hmm. wrote that Batgirl se- series in 2011. It's wonderful. It really brings Barbara back to the forefront. And it's it's just a fun time. It introduces a lot of great characters. And it seems like the Batgirl movie is going to take a lot from it, mm-hmm. which I'm very excited for. Yeah. But yeah, this is a prime example of fridging. I think... it. Uh, on the same token though i think it's interesting what it did to her character up until she was picked up again like her whole arc as oracle is honestly really important for like disability representation and like absolutely it's it's really interesting that something so vile could there there is like light in there in like it's it's shockwave effect on the character. Yeah, you're you are absolutely right. I I th- think Barbara as Oracle is one of the most important developments to come out of comics in like the late 80s, early 90s, specifically for that level of disability rep and showing that like even after a moment of fridging like this, um characters can still find a way to be characters like they mm-hmm. really developed barbara into her own character after this yeah i i definitely agree and i think the scene itself is just so interesting because it is besides like the actual carnival scene it is one of the brightest couple pages in the whole book um and, like, I've discussed this with other people. Like, in this book, everything is so muted. Like, the colors are so meticulous that, like, you you can't help but read into things like that. And, like, the only things that are bright in this book are the Joker and Barbara. And, like, the floor in this scene. Like, it, it's a really... And I don't even really know what to make of that. Like, I... I'm not in Brian Ballin's head in this scene, but I would love to be because like I I feel like he's trying to say something with like the bright yellow shirt and the bright orange hair he, and like the bright pink floor. It's yeah. We I think we do need to address that like the Joker is in like a Hawaiian shirt and board shorts for this entire scene. Yeah. And and while this is all going on, he's making jokes and like she she ma- he makes a bunch of like librarian jokes. She he he let mm-hmm. the line that I have written down is there's a hole in the jacket and the spine appears to be damaged. Mm-hmm. And that is a 
in context, a fucking raw line. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and he keeps going too. Like he he, yeah. he says she won't be walking off the shelves in that state of repair. Like he keeps oh he keeps pouring salt on the wound. <laughs> like it's it's and I think that is like that is where the Joker really shines, I think, is like when he does something this vile, this vicious, this horrifying, and continues to add on it with his corny jokes. Yeah, I think that's like, that's the quintessential Joker that we know. You know, it's that huge contrast, like that reveling in death and destruction and chaos and like having a laugh at it. You know, like, I think that's, like, this scene is really, like, it makes sense for the Joker. You know, like, as as abhorrent as it is, like, this is a quintessential Joker scene. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I do love, <laughs> I love the outfit, honestly. The, the outfit, outfit is great. It's really yeah. funny. And <laughs> I've seen, I... The only time I've ever seen this Joker outfit reference is in uh, Injustice 2. I believe it's a variant outfit for the Joker. Oh my god. They have him with the camera and the Hawaiian shirt and the board shorts. I I saw somebody cosplay this look once. I don't I was at a con. Oh no. I think about like a while after I first read this story, but then I just see a guy in like the board shorts and the Hawaiian shirt carrying around a camera. And he was, he was really nice. He was offering to take cosplay pictures of people with his, cause he had like a Polaroid cam. That's cool. Actually, that's really cute. <laughs> I'm just glad he didn't threaten to, I just glad he didn't shoot them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So then we get in, we get another flashback where you see this unnamed man who will become the Joker turn to crime with the Red Hood gang, which is one of, like, my favorite Golden Age Batman bits because I love the outfits that they wear. The tuxedos mm -hmm. with, like, the bright red pill helmets. It... Yeah. In content... Like, now, it looks so stupid. But it it's great. I love it. But it's, like, yeah, it's... It's that level of, like, Golden Age cheese that, like... It's nice to see sometimes. It's a little refreshing. <laughs> in a late 2000s uh, Batman and Robin story uh, by Grant Morrison, um, they bring that look back, but on, like, the Jason Todd Red Hood. Ooh. Which, like, is kind of the, the craziest dichotomy because you have insane anti-hero Jason Todd in a tuxedo <laughs> with a big pill helmet. Oh, and like, God. good, good for him. Yeah. And then we get to the other famous sequence in this comic. I I call it the one bad, bad day sequence. Uh, I've seen people call it like the carnival sequence, the ghost train. It is when Gordon is kidnapped by some of the Joker's henchmen and taken to the carnival that the Joker had bought. And... What follows is the Joker trying to break Jim Gordon. Mm-hmm. I, oh gosh, this, this scene is also, this is one of the ones that I saw when I flipped through 
on my first read um that was just like shocking like i landed up on page 26 and i and i see like these like demented like ripped babies with like sharpened teeth <laughs> like like undressing jim gordon and like cattle prodding him into this putting him in like bondage gear and yeah putting him in a cage yeah it's it's a lot and i think on um on page 28 we get like i don't know we i feel like there's like probably around five really iconic joker panels in here and i've marked them all and i think this is the scariest one i think is it is it can i guess what can i guess what it is yeah yeah is it the joker on the throne of babies it, that one is it is right after that. I, oh, like, like that one is menacing, but we get a close up when he says, um, when he says, remember, I wouldn't do that. Remembering's a, da- a dangerous place. I find that the past is, uh, such a worrying and anxious place. Yeah. And then it like it does like a harsh zoom and his face is really contorted into like a snarl almost. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. And like I think that like is a very I don't know, it's almost it's almost not the Joker. Like it's like this this demon that has taken over. Like it there is no comedy. Like even though he makes a joke, it is ha ha with a space in between each and they're bolded like this is not like this is not like a funny silly joker like he is like on a mission and it's terrifying (laughs) we've strayed away from silly goofy guy territory yeah no we we've entered the the psychopath the psycho killer territory if if you will (laughs) and they put him on the carnival ride and this is my favorite sequence which, because, like, it's bold of Alan Moore and Brian Ballin to include a musical number yeah. in a thing you read, yeah. but I love it. I, I do, too. And it's, it's very fun to watch, like, the, the, this insane carnival ride that, like, goes over massive hills through these winding hallways, and the Joker is on every screen. Mm-hmm. And I think that very first, sorry, I, I I think that very first panel of the Joker on the screen is like is really interesting. Like all the panels are are a little different, but that first one looks so much like the um, which Joker is that from from the TV show? Oh, Cesar Romero. Yeah, like it almost looks like a like a callback of sorts like it's a very it's an interesting like it's like an upshot like and i don't know if it's just the angle or what but it uh again it like that it doesn't look like this joker you know his his face doesn't look so narrow like it does in in the next couple screens yeah oh my god you're right it and i think it's because like you got to remember that that was one of the only live action Joker appearances they had to work mm-hmm. off of the Cesar Romero Joker, because Jack Nicholson doesn't come until like a year after this gets released. And yeah, you, it really says something about like how much 
of a definitive Joker this is that it borrows so much from what came before this interpretation and influenced so much of what came after. And this is where the Joker basically delivers his thesis statement. Like, I have a bunch of quotes written down here. Um, Madness is the emergency exit. Um, If too much weight is placed upon a person, they snap. You have one bad day and you're crazy as everyone else. Mm -hmm. It's horrifying as you as you watch Gordon like he he he, he's just in this train and the Joker singing and then the the all the screens get lined with naked photos of his daughter. It's it is horrifying. Yeah. And then that that final panel before um, they sort of they they uh, they put him in the cage, like before he exits the, the ride itself is another one of those like terrifyingly malicious panels. The one with his neck outstretched. Like he looks like he looks like a creepypasta character. Like he looks like, yeah, like he looks like a cryptid almost in that one. Like, <laughs> he does. His, his neck is craned to the side, like at like an inhuman angle. Like his face is just impossibly sharp and his eyes are like bugging out. It's just, it's another one of those just visceral panels. Yeah. It's like you get, extremely raw pieces of artwork in this book. And I don't think we can praise the art enough. Yeah. And then you get the, I think like the most iconic panel from this story in the last flashback sequence Mm -hmm. where he falls into the pit of chemicals and then he crawls out. And for a second, you just see, you see him from the back. You see him just, struggling and he starts laughing and then you get the iconic panel of like him with his hands on his head looking demented and the ha 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 in the background yeah i think this like you some could argue that this panel like is like people have taken single inspiration from this panel to craft joker narratives like, like, yeah, he's doing the thing Jared Leto did. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's doing. Yeah, no, I think I think maybe this is the only page that Jared Leto saw in preparation for his role. Yeah, you know what I think? I think under like the green hair in his hands, there's a little tattoo that says "damaged." Yeah, I think. So. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, it's it's funny how uh, chemical baths will do that to you. You actually get bad tattoos. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then we get, because like for most of this, Batman hasn't been around. He's just been in the background. And then he shows up at the carnival, finds Gordon, and Gordon's like, the Joker tried to break me, but I'm still standing. You got to take him in and do it by the book because we have to show him that our way works. And I think like that is mm-hmm. that is the central theme of like this story, showing that like you don't have to succumb to the madness of the world. This way works. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's the that is like the central conflict of this whole story. It's and it's interesting because there is like 
there's a push and pull here. Like in in the next scene that we're about to get into, like the Joker makes his argument and Batman doesn't say anything, but he keeps fighting. So like yeah. it's it's sort of clear where he stands, even without Absolutely. him saying anything. Yeah. And then you get you get the final confrontation after they fight for a bit where like this is my this might be my favorite series of lines in the book. Um, so maybe ordinary people don't always crack. Maybe there isn't any need to crawl under a rock with all the other slimy things when the trouble hits. Maybe it was just you all the time. Mm-hmm. And like that that defines their relationship for me. I think you've got Batman on one end who like after all of this still believes that people can be brought to justice and will not resort to straight up murder. And you have the Joker who deep dives further and further and further into a pit of madness. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting that that that's Batman's first line in this whole, or like he says a few things before he, he gets into this sentence, but like that's his first line in this whole exchange really. And I, I want to just like backtrack a yeah. little bit to what I think is like another quintessential panel for the Joker on 46, right? Right before Batman crashes through the window, there is like this almost pitiful panel of the Joker. Like his face is like soft and like he looks genuinely sad. And he says, why aren't you laughing? Like he's like, I am. I'm looking at that panel right now and you you are so right. Yeah, like this like he finished his argument and like now he's like almost pleading with Batman. Like they both know that one of them's going to die and like this is like sort of his final like like he's never shown humanity before and he's like oh, I'm going to try it. and then Brad- <laughs> Batman breaks in and starts beating the shit out of him. Yeah. And like yeah. I think that it, it just I mean it adds to like you said like that is their relationship you know like they they're they both have such they're both stubborn you know like neither of them are gonna crack and like Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter what they use like what arguments they're making because they're both so set in their ways absolutely and then at the end, you get Batman trying to, like, help the Joker, trying to rehabilitate him. And then he says it's it's far too late. Mm-hmm. And you get that shot of them, those pan- that series of panels of them in the rain, while the Joker tells one final joke. And we're back to the start. I think that's the, I think that is one of the most clever things about this book is that it starts and ends the exact same way yeah it's just with rain on the city streets and do you think he kills him i don't because this is i don't this is a huge topic of debate and i I think i would agree with you um i i i think it's definitely ambiguous like you could you could argue the other way i i personally don't especially in the comic book i think uh, if we want to get into talking about the animation, I think they they left it. <laughs> we will get there. That okay. That's next. 
Okay, okay. But yeah, I, I think like in the book specifically, it is it is left open to interpretation on purpose. But my personal take is that he doesn't. Yeah, I I think the one thing that could make you argue in in favor of the Batman kills the Joker theory in this is that center panel where he's got his hands on his shoulder on the Joker's shoulders. Mm-hmm. And they're both just laughing. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like that doesn't immediately signify he's going to kill the guy. But yeah, I, I think there's another because I'm looking at this page. and I think there's another panel here that that really signifies a lot that. Top top right, the first time in this book that Batman has smiled, even the slightest. Mm-hmm. It's like a tiny smirk, and for the first time, just indulges in one of these jokes. Yeah, I think the siren as well is another indicator, like that. That's the only thing left over on the bottom three panels. Is the is the cop car approaching, like? I've heard this argument made that, like, if Batman was going to snap, he wouldn't do it in front of the cops. Oh, absolutely not. Like, because at that point, like, you know, what is Batman but another, like, threat to the justice system in Gotham? Yeah. You know, like, he's just another murderer, basically. Absolutely. But I think so... this, these last three pages are, like, really the quintessential. <laughs> Probably there some of the there are a lot of incredible like sequences in this book, and you know, transitioning into like final thoughts on the comic itself. Um, I feel like like I I remember not dis I remember disliking this more than I liked it, and when I when I had first read it, I think that was maybe because. Of just how mad I've been at like how DC has handled Barbara Gordon in the mm-hmm. decades since this. Even though I do love the Oracle stuff, I I think it's just like they've never they've always gone back to a status quo that has set that this broke in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I I I feel like if I th- we talked about this in the episode that comes out that that came out uh, two weeks ago at the time of this coming out, but um is this is another example of like like the Teen Titans the Judas contract where um there is a central female character that is used in a way for shock value almost in the story itself, mm-hmm. but in the hands of like a different writer could have been given way much more development because they are an extremely important point part of this story. And I just feel like the Barbara moment comes out of nowhere and isn't given enough focus to justify it for me. I think, I think that is the one problem I have with this story. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I think it's just, it's, it seems unnecessary. Like it, it, like narratively, isn't as important as some people might argue it to be. Like I think he could have just as easily driven Gordon mad with his carnival of freaks and torture, rather than just like traumatizing him through his daughter and, yeah. and like abusing someone that had really nothing to do with this. 
Um, so yeah, I I think I agree with you there, and I think that's something that I actually didn't really grasp the first time I read it. Like the first time I read it, I was like, wow, this is revolutionary. I love like the art in this. I love the horror elements. But I like that's something that has sort of hit me with with age and with more knowledge about the space. Um, Absolutely. And like, I, I want to pose this question to you. Who do you think the main character of this story is? I, I, I feel like it is the Joker. Like, I, I feel that that like, cause Batman doesn't really like, it seems that the story is centered around the Joker and Batman is the conflict. Like this almost seems as, especially, I feel like the vignettes and like the flashbacks help with this, but like, it seems like it's a story from Joker's perspective, even though it, it like isn't written that way but it's sort of it it sort of comes across that way at least the way that i read it yeah i i think i agree with, i think i i agree with you partially there i in recent memory i have tried to read this as a gordon story as like a jim gordon story and again i think that the stuff with barbara like it doesn't go enough to make it like that but i feel like the story of jim gordon triumphing over one bad day is something that could have been that could be explored more yeah i that's interesting i've never that is not an argument that i've ever heard for the narrative of this story but i think that's a really interesting point of view yeah because like i don't know in in my analysis of it as like a joker story like the way I see it is that in that in that in the Joker's sort of like th- a couple like thesis panels, um, he sort of hypothesizes that Batman had a bad day, you know, which we know is true. Yeah. Um, and like that's sort of where I see the most conf like I see it as one bad day, sort of still breaking Batman, but in a different way. Yeah. And like I think looking at it from Gordon's perspective is a lot more human because like when you're looking at just Batman and the Joker, like these are two very like they're, they're human, but they're, they're like still like superheroes and supervillains. Like they're not like they're, they're paragons of their own like ideology in a way. Whereas Gordon is just this guy. Like he's, he's a guy in the face of, the worst day of his life. Yeah. And I think that his triumph is honestly more noble than, than Batman's because he just, (laughs) he had a bad day and decided to start beating up poor people. (laughs) And Gordon Gordon had a bad day. He just does the right thing. He does the right thing. And he tells Batman to do the right thing because you know, he know, he know, I feel like that panel is important because he knows that Batman has already had, his bad day. I, I heard the argument from someone that the Joker was trying to give Batman his bad day, but he wasn't. He was trying to prove a point to Batman to get him over to his side. Yeah. Because he knows he's already he knows he's already snapped in his own way. Absolutely. And if he can just convince him of his his way of life, then he'll have another great ally for chaos. Yeah. Um I think that's a great place to put a pin in like the discussion of the comic story itself. Mm-hmm. I want to do a couple of like mini segments. Um, 
because like because I think this has been a- adapted in so many mediums and taken in, things about this have been taken from as inspiration for other adaptations. But I just wanted to talk about why I don't like the 2016, I believe, Killing Joke animated adaptation. Um, it's not good. It's bad. It's so bad. <laughs> um, it's it's really bad. Um, there was one part about it I do like, though. There's one part about it I do, I do like. It is Mark Hamill's performance doing the song, specifically the song, because I think. Yeah. You know, I'm mm-hmm. glad they gave Mark Hamill a musical number, obviously. Um, I don't think he was mm-hmm. the right person to portray this Joker. But that's a, that's a story for another day. Um, mm. And then they do, they try to do something that I argued for with this. They try to give Barbara more, a more of a place in the story. In the worst way possible. In the worst way possible, yes. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. that Because, like, the animated adaptation of The Killing Joke tacks on, like, a 30-minute prologue of, like, Bruce and Barbara solving a mob mystery that has nothing to do with the whole, with the story itself. And it's revealed that they're in a relationship. And, you know, I don't like it. It's bad. It doesn't make any sense. And it's bad. It comes out of nowhere. You know, that is that is a good place to move on from that segment. I I have said my thoughts. Isaac, if you want to say anything else. I want to add one thought about the ending in the animated series, because. Yes. Oh, my. I guess the I haven't seen the whole thing out of spite. Um, but I watched, I watched the song and I watched the ending and I read it at the same time. And I think the ending in the animation sucks so hard. Yes. Like they, they took, it's like they took all of the, the impact out of it somehow. And and I don't know, like, if that's because like, I just, I just have a bad taste in my mouth from the animation or, or what, but like, I think what it does is it, it totally takes away all ambiguity because this is a this is a really interesting contention that i found the last scene of the animation the last shot we get first of all there's no cop car in the back there's no sirens so it's just the two of them alone and the last shot we get before blackout is batman still laughing yeah which i feel like just pigeonholes the ending into well it kind of seems like batman killed him like like I like there's not really a good argument against that because it sounds kind of sinister. Like just just Batman laughing when we fade to black with his hands on the Joker, like that there's no ambiguity there to me. N- not at all. I And so uh, yeah. I yeah, it is uh, not it, it's it is certainly a take. I don't like it. Yeah, but I, I, I wanted to do one last thing. I wanted because sometimes when it call when it, when the when it seems right, um, we we on this podcast uh try to do like fan casting for um a specific storyline, but mm-hmm. because this Joker has been taken and put into various different adaptations for decades now, 
I wanted to just evaluate like the live action portrayals of the Joker for a hot second. Okay. Okay. Because I now I haven't seen any of the Batman animated series. I like I like Cesar Romero's vibe. Yeah, he looks fun, but I this this just gives this this I selfishly put in here to give me a, an excuse to talk about the 1989 Tim Burton Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Which this might be a hot take. I don't know, but I think it's my favorite Batman movie. I. I think that is definitely a hot take to some, to some people. I I also love it. It's, I don't know. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I love it for what it is. Like it's like it's fun, you know. It, like it's campy. <laughs> it. I think it's the perfect blend of like the later darker stuff and the very campy Joel Schumacher Batman movies, and I think part of most of it comes from Jack Nicholson as. The Joker. Mm-hmm. And he he is having so much fun here. And yeah, there are scenes, I think, that that they just I think they just let they started started rolling the camera and just let him do whatever he wants. I'm specifically talking about the parade scene. Mm-hmm. Because he's just up there just like hanging out, <laughs> doing a bunch of funny dance moves and just throwing money everywhere and it's so fun. Yeah. Cuz you know how murderous this specific joker can get. Mhm. And you see that at various points in the movie and like I don't know, I I I love it a lot. I love I love Jack Nicholson as as the Joker a lot and then I think we have to talk about Mark Hamill. Yeah. Even though he's like he's mostly done animated stuff but like that is the voice of a generation for the Joker yeah. for, for a lot of people. Eh. I think I think we are in that weird period of time where like we didn't grow up with the Batman animated series, but like we knew of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think Mark Hamill is that guy for a lot of people. And and I think for good yeah. reason. I think he does a really good job embodying the voice. My my exposure to him mostly is like the Arkham games that he did. Yep, same. I I played a lot of the a lot of the Arkham games. I think I played Arkham City to death. Um, and I think he was a pretty big part of that one. Um, what good games, by the way? <laughs> yeah, I also just to backtrack a tiny bit to the Tim Burton movie. I made a note. That on the cover of the deluxe version of The Killing Joke, it has a quote from Tim Burton. Oh, yeah. That says, it's my favorite. It's the first comic I've ever loved. And yeah. I just thought that's really interesting because I feel like there's quite a contrast between this movie and The Killing Joke. Wait, this is, a, this is actually a good thing to talk about because, again, if you want to get a bookshelf reveal... Um, there, I have a book of like essays written by Tim Burton about like a bunch of his films. Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically from like the section on Batman, he was like, I was never a comics guy. I never read comics. But then he reads the killing joke right when he gets like. Gets like signed to do the Batman movie. And like, I think everything clicks for him. That's so interesting. 
I'm glad. It, uh, One last thing about the 89 Batman movie. Uh, it's a free Prince soundtrack. Uh, it's great. It's like good Prince music. Yeah. You can't go wrong. Um, yeah, it's great. And then I think we got to jump to Heath Ledger. Yeah, I think that's that's the next most influential Joker. Yeah. If Jack Nicholson borrows a lot of the look from the Killing Joke Joker, Heath Ledger borrows the ideology, I think. I think there are there are lines that I that are almost like direct rips from the Killing Joke. Like, uh, like they're they're paraphrased almost like one that i remember very specifically is like he gives his one bad day speech when he says all it takes is a little push like that is yeah. the one bad day like that that is that, just a direct paraphrasing it is like another college student looking at someone else's paper and just changing the words yeah, around yeah it, it really it's is it's right there uh, it's so good yeah and i think I don't know. There's there's a lot of things that you can say about Heath Ledger's character in relation to, you know, the Joker in general and like what like what it does to people. Like, I I think I I don't like to um, really like debate people's like mental state, you know, you you know, but like or or, like get into, you know, discussion of what someone was going through because you never know what people are going through. But I feel like, you know, that's a hard role to do. And like the way that he was taking inspiration from this Joker is really bleak. And it's like, it's sad. Like I've found myself even in just like analyzing this for, for like two weeks, it is like, it's a hard pill to swallow this whole narrative and this Joker ideology um yeah and so you know i i don't know i i think he did a brilliant brilliant job um getting that like sadistic you know like psychopathic like just stark raving mad joker um but you know i think i think it definitely took a toll yeah you're absolutely right i i think there is one Joker that I think doesn't borrow a lot from the killing joke. And I think that's Joaquin. Yeah. I I think, cause I think we could unpack. I, as much as I want to talk about the Joker, I want to talk as much as I want to talk about Joker. Um, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I think. I don't want to make the film bros mad. I think they borrow. I think Joaquin borrows uh like a like a teaspoon from the killing yeah. joke. Like I think yeah. I think he borrows that that sentiment like that that we feel bad for this guy that he was like a loser and like a failed comic. Um but I yeah. but I don't think they take much else. I think absolutely I completely agree because I don't think that is the I don't think the Joker that Joker is the same Joker. Yeah, no, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah, this Well, yeah. that 
that is all I'm going to talk about. That's all I think we're going to talk about with the 2019 Joker movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're not even going to touch Jared Leto. Isaac, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you. This for was having a me. probably one of the deepest conversations we've had on this <laughs> podcast. Well, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad to come in here and 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 chop it up with some with some uh, Joker philosophy. Yes, um, we've all truly gone Joker mode today. Um, thank you for listening, and remember, we truly do live in a society. Goodbye, everybody. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman's theme music was written by Charlotte Rosenthal. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman is produced by Mythonomica Productions. Thank you for listening.